Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 60 now on our website. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, Brooke Jarvis, David Gran, Tom Juneau, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Earl Swift in November of 2014. At the time, his book, Autobiography, A Classic Car, An Outlaw Motorhead, and 57 Years of the American Dream had just been published. Swift has a new book out now, Chesapeake Requiem, A Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island, was published by HarperCollins and is getting rave reviews. Autobiography is also a fantastic book. It tells the life story of a 1957 Chevy that, at the beginning of the book, is falling apart. He also delves deep into the life of the current owner, Tommy Arney. Arney had a brutal childhood. He dropped out of school in the fifth grade and lived a life of crime, but he had also become a somewhat successful and controversial businessman. I remember thinking that this man who looked like a professional wrestler with a mullet that spilled halfway down his back and, uh, you know, just uh, wrist the size of wine bottles uh, and, and clearly without a lot of education. Uh, I remember thinking that this had to be one of the most interesting people I'd ever talked to. He was obviously uh, as smart as the day was long and uh, education or no and uh he had a great sense of humor he was a lot of fun to talk to we you know i was sorry when the interview ended and i remember leaving the body shop thinking up i hope i run into that guy again the story of this car started as a five-part series for the virginian pilot where swift had been a reporter for many years in this interview he talked about the differences between reporting for newspaper work and reporting for a book project I think I think that the the toolkit is is exactly the same. You just do more of it. It's just a, it's a question of scale. Um, the the real big uh, I think the real big differences come in just what do you do with that massive information that you've reported? You know that's that really that's really where the uh, the scale of the thing requires you to take a completely different approach. 
Swift is a former Fulbright Fellow in New Zealand and is currently a residential fellow of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. As usual, we've linked to Swift's books and some of his other work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrithepodcast.com. Earl, thanks for joining the podcast. All right, Matt, I'm thrilled to be here. Hey, I was hoping uh, we could start things off by having you read um, that first, the very first, you know, two pages in autobiography, um, that section where you're describing the main character, Tommy Arney. Can we start with that? Absolutely. Here goes. Uh, a warning to anyone listening that this gets salty in places. Behold, Tommy Arney, 6'1", 240, biceps big as most men's thighs and displayed to maximum effect in the black wife beater that is his warm weather fashion essential. Thick neck. Goatee, hair trimmed tight on the sides into a broom-like inch on top, having grown too thin to facilitate the lush mullet he favored for the better part of two decades. Big calloused mitts roughened by wrench turning and car towing and several hundred applications of blunt force trauma, of which dozens resulted in his arrest. Self-applied four-dot tattoo on his left wrist, signifying his years as guest of the state. A belly nourished by beer, whiskey, rumple mins, and buckets of both hook cuisine and buffalo chicken wings, of the latter 72 at one sitting, but ameliorated by excellent posture. He leads with his chest, shoulders thrown rearward, daring the world to take a swing at him. Few scars considering. Under his right arm is the ghost of a surgery he endured without general anesthesia, its healing compromised when a few hours after he was wheeled from the OR, he snuck out of the hospital for a beer at a nearby strip club, got into a fight, and reopened the incision in such manner that he drenched himself, the club, and a neighboring 7-Eleven in blood. Point of information, he owned the strip club. On his skull, a dent wrought by repeated blows with a heavy stick of lumber. Two breaks in the bones of his nose. And here and there, faded Nick's were calling a melee outside of a Norfolk, Virginia sailor barge, during which he says he warned away an advancing canine cop by hollering, Don't set that dog on me or I'll fuck up your dog then made good on the threat by clamping his beefy hands around the charging animal's neck, squeezing until it passed out, and beating the cop with his own German shepherd. Speaking of which, he can be intemperate with the language. He once announced in court that if it were up to him, the opposing counsel would be executed. I like to fucking cuss, he said while introducing a buddy, but this motherfucker, he fucking cusses like a motherfucker. He called one municipal attorney on whose good graces he relied a stupid motherfucking cunt. Then, having had time to reconsider, told her, I'm sorry I called you a stupid motherfucking cunt. In the 20 years since I first met Tommy Arney, I've heard many labels applied to him. Crazy, brash, a rough customer, charming, funny, shrewd. A case could be made for any and all of them, to which I'd add a scholar. He has devoted more than 30 years to study in his field. His expertise is such that people come hundreds of miles to tap it. He is a historian, a curator of memories, a student of America's popular culture in the mid-20th century. Though, admittedly, that is not the first thing most people notice about him. Thanks so much for reading that. Um, that I don't know if I've ever read a first section in a book that describes who is ostensibly the main character so well um, and really makes you be able to see see this person in real life. Well, it's it's a bit of a risky approach and then it just kind of lays it all out there. You know, you're making a, 
offering up a physical description before really uh, relating any action in the story. And uh, but in in this case, he is so over, so bigger than life, so over the top in his in his manner and in his appearance uh, as well that uh, it just seemed a mistake to me to to fold it into that, you know, what, what then comes later in chapter one, to just uh, have it parenthetically kind of delivered to the reader. This is, this is uh, you know, he is kind of a Leroy Brown character, so you have to kind of present him almost in song at the beginning. <laughs> right. right. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the book and what it's about and how he fits into kind of the storyline? Well, the book is about a 57 Chevy uh, station wagon. Uh, that I tracked back through all 14 people who owned it to the day it rolled out of the showroom uh, at Colonial Chevrolet in Norfolk, Virginia. Actually, beyond that, too, the factory. And uh, it attempts to tell a post-war history or post-war story uh, about America through this one car and this otherwise unconnected fraternity of people who have owned it. And when the story opens, the car... By now, and this is 2010 when it opens, uh, the car's in terrible shape, and uh, it is owned by Tommy Arney, who you just met, uh, the 13th owner, the uh, proprietor of restaurants, and a, uh, a classic car lot in his description, which a lot of people would call a junkyard. That, uh, and he, has, he, he announces uh, right at the beginning of the story that it's his intention to try to save this car. Uh, and we follow him as he attempts to do that. Can you talk a, a little bit about Tom? You mentioned in that first section that you have known him for a long time. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got to know him? I'm, I, I, it was through your newspaper reporting career. Is that correct? That's true. Now, I was a reporter at the Virginian Pilot for 22 years, and in 1993 I was sent over to Tommy's Strip Club, which was the business he was in at the time. It was a place called The Body Shop, and it combined his two passions – naked women or near naked women and cars get a uh, called the body shop because apparently it used to be one uh, this building uh, in its distant past and he had a big picture window next to uh, the pool table that looked out on a you know a beautifully restored uh, car of one sort or another he rotated models through there anyway I, I went over to the body shop to interview Tommy because he had been in a big uh, dispute with the state over its alcoholic beverage control board regulations, specifically one that said that he could not serve hard liquor in the presence of a woman's exposed midriff or buttocks. And, uh, and those being central to his business model, he decided to take them on. He felt what he felt was a constitutional, uh, constitutional battle and he prevailed. Nobody thought he would. And so the paper sent me over there to interview him about it. And, you know, this is two days after Christmas, and I remember walking into the gloom of, of you know, the, the lights were always down at the body shop where they were. And um, we sat near the stage and talked for a couple of hours. And I remember thinking that this man who looked like a professional wrestler with a mullet that spilled halfway down his back and, uh, you know, just uh, wrist the size of wine bottles, uh, and, and clearly, without a lot of education, uh, I remember thinking that this had to be one of the most interesting people I'd ever talked to. He was obviously uh, as smart as the day was long, and uh, uh, education or no. And uh, 
he had a great sense of humor. He was a lot of fun to talk to. We, you know, I was sorry when the interview ended, and I remember leaving the body shop thinking, "I, I hope I run into that guy again," you know, and in good circumstances because uh, that was never a guarantee. And uh, eleven years later, in two thousand four, having been the owner of a succession of terrible cars throughout my twenties, most of them very old, and uh, having wondered when I had them whether they had ever been worthwhile or had always been just complete pieces of junk. Um, I got to thinking it might make a, a pretty cool story for the paper to find an old car and try to trace it back through everybody who owned it, which was much tougher than I expected it to be. But I got lucky with it, was able to do it. And um, at that point, the car had been owned by 11 people. And uh, I wrote a series that appeared in the paper and uh, really couldn't turn it into a book. Thought about it fiddled with it, just couldn't find a way to do it. So I set the project aside. And a couple of years later, learned that Tommy Arney had bought the car and realized, okay, now I have to write a book. And so that's the... Can you, can, can you talk a little bit about um, how... A, a couple of things, I guess. Well, I'm trying to decide what order we want to go in. Um, talk about how you tracked um, all of those people down in terms of finding out who the owners were, because that seems like such, such a huge reporting job. Um, and, and how did you settle on that one car? How did you find that one car? I will tell you of any book I've ever done, this is the most reporting driven by far. And I've done other books that seemed pretty reporting driven at the time, but this did, you know, because the, the reporting for one thing occurred over about a, a 10 year period. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virginia and a good many other states shred their DMV records after a couple of title transfers or a handful of years, whichever is longer. And uh, I did not know that going into that 2004 newspaper project. I, I figured I'd find a, a cache of paperwork in Richmond that I'd be able to tap into. And then I'd, I'd bounce from one owner to another the same way that you can you know, they can track the ownership of a house through deed transfers down at the county courthouse. And, and unfortunately, I found that there is virtually no paper trail at all. And so what I had to do was find a car uh, owned by somebody who remembered enough about the person he or she bought it from that I could figure out who that seller was and then repeat the process over and over and over and over. And I knew that would be a challenge because to work for the series that I had in I had envisioned I needed a car that had been around for a while that had seen enough local history that it had a story to tell and that meant a 35 plus year old car that had been owned by six seven people minimum and uh, so I set out I, I got out the uh, classifieds in the local paper in the pilot and started going through the antiques and classics columns and uh, you know looking for interesting cars the car that I was looking for had to meet a number of, of criteria to work, I thought, and in addition to being of a certain age and having been owned by a, a minimum number of people, it had to be it had to be a cool car, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it had to have had a you know uh, uh, an interesting history in the hands of its of its human owners as well. That was really the fourth criteria. Uh, I picked out maybe a dozen, fifteen cars that that looked pretty interesting just based on their their vintage and model. Started calling the people who were trying to sell them in the paper and uh, ran into brick walls immediately. Half the people I talked to didn't remember where they had, you know, from whom they had bought the cars. And uh, another few 
remembered one generation back, you know, they gave me the, the name of the people they, they had bought from. But when I called those people, they didn't remember. So after one afternoon, I think it was, I was down to three cars. And uh, one of them was a 1970 Olds Cutlass wagon owned by a born-again Christian garbage man named Dave Marsensuk. And I went up, I called Dave without high hopes because I'd already run into so many brick walls and was beginning to get the sick feeling that this great idea was was going to prove impossible to do. And uh, and also I, I called him with some trepidation because a 1970 Olds Cutlass station wagon is not a very inspiring piece of <laughs> automotive machinery. But, but I thought, okay, you know, at this stage, anything will do. And he, he buoyed my spirits immediately on the phone. He said that he knew the car's entire history and that it was in great shape. And I could come over to his house and look at it if I wanted to. So I drove over there immediately. And Dave and I sat in the car and talked about it. And it was pristine. I mean, a really boring car in great shape. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, it had been, I think Dave was the fourth owner. And it had spent most of its history on a farm. So it had two strikes against it. It had just not been driven much. And it did not have much of a story to tell. So I was leaving, um, giving my regrets to Dave. And, and he said, well, you know, I do have another car that uh, might interest you. It's over at Big Al's Mufflers getting a new exhaust on it. And I need a ride over there. If you don't mind giving me a ride, I'll show you the car. So I gave him a lift over to Big Al's. And there in the parking lot was this thrashed at daylights, uh, sun-bleached, turquoise 57 Chevy wagon and immediately I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to trace a car that at this point was 47 years old um, but as a courtesy to Dave I wrote down the VIN off of the driver's door jam sent off faxed uh, a request for information to DMV that when I got back to the office that evening and a couple days later a manila envelope arrived in the mail and in it were two title transfers that in DMV style had been redacted of anything useful. The names and addresses and everything else of the people who had owned this car had been removed with a heavy black marker, but they'd used a bad black marker. And I found that when I could, when I held the, the paperwork up near the fluorescent lights overhead, you could see through the ink and I got two names that way. I got the names of the Dr. Alan Wilson, MD, and a woman named Mary Ricketts. And combined with Dave's name and the person Dave bought from, which he remembered, um, you know, I had four names and I was able to start from there and work my way back. And I got so lucky. I got a, you know, I got 11 people who essentially remembered an, an enormous amount about this car that they had owned. And, uh, 11 people who were very excited to hear from me and to hear that the car still existed. I mean, this was a car that they all remembered in great detail. And so they did remember the circumstances of their purchases and sales. And, um, and, I was able to, to stitch it together. How did you find out then that um, that Tommy had purchased the car? I was, uh, this is a couple of years, you know, it was in, in 2004, just after Christmas, uh, that the, the series ran in the paper over five days. And, uh, and like I said, I, I thought about turning it into a book at that point. And um, what I found was that I had 11 discrete a necklace of 11 discrete stories. I did not have a single narrative with forward propulsion sufficient to get people through a hundred thousand words of the story. And, uh, it worked fine broken up into five pieces in the paper. It would not work fine between the covers of the book. And so I set it aside 
And uh, a couple years later, in the spring of 2007, I was teaching, I was substitute teaching a class at Old Dominion University in feature writing that my buddy Lon Wagner taught. Uh, Lon worked with me at the, at the pilot and was an adjunct that semester and was called out of town and asked me to sub for him. And his syllabus called for me to talk about paper chasing, how to, how to use documentation to, to kind of shore up your reporting. And so as part of my, of the, among the props I brought to the class was a city directory, which had proven vital in closing up the ownership of, of the first 11 owners of the car. And uh, I explained how a city directory worked to the class. And, and they got, as college students always do, got really excited about the city directory. You know? It's as low-tech a tool as you can hope to use, but people aren't aware that they exist. And when they find out they exist, they're, they're very excited by them. Um, anyway, after class, as I was packing up my papers, this uh, skinny uh, kid in his early 20s approaches my desk and says, you know that car you were talking about? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, my dad owns it now, and he knows you. I said, really? Who's your dad? And he said, my, his, his name is Tommy Arnie. And the second those words left his lips, I thought, oh, my God, I've got to go back to that. that, that I mean, the chances of Tommy Arnie's son being in that class are just... <laughs> had, had he not been in the class, there wouldn't have been a book. Had he not had the gumption to come up to me after class, there wouldn't have been a book. I mean, but this, this is one of those projects, Matt, where uh, I found myself shaking my head at the, just the weird serendipity of things time and time and time again. I got a lot of lucky breaks in the reporting. No question about it. A lot of it was detective work, but just as much was blind, stupid luck. And, um, you know, the, the intertwining of the characters through time, which I was completely unaware of, really, until I, I went back to look at it as a book project and realized that you've got characters who, uh, who cross paths and, uh, you know, at various points along the narrative, it, it, it got a little creepy almost. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I really began to get the sense that uh, I wasn't as in control as the story was. I think, uh, you know, equally amazing is that the car just happened to be a 57 Chevy that, because that's, that's the car, right? I mean, I don't know anything about cars, but I know a 57 Chevy when I see one. The most iconic car to ever come off the line. I mean, that it's a station wagon, uh, would reduce its appeal to a collector a bit, mm -hmm. but it makes, for my purposes, made the story even better. Mm -hmm. It's owned by a much more typically, you know, suburban American, uh, throughout its history. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, reporting for a book? Because that seems like such a drastically different thing than reporting for a newspaper story. Maybe not, but, um, you know, how uh, how do you go about setting off to do this major type of reporting job? It seems there's so, it's so big, one wonders where you start. Well, you know, Bob, I'm not sure it is that that different, really. I, I think it's it's essentially the same job, only you don't have the the luxury of an afternoon deadline to make you stop. <laughs> and in this case, you know, um, I reported this book as as long as I possibly could. The last two scenes in the book occur four and seven days before my deadline, uh, which was last August first, August first, two thousand thirteen. Um, 
you know, I think I think that the the toolkit is is exactly the same. You just do more of it. It's just a, it's a question of scale. Um, the the real big uh, I think the real big differences come in just what do you do with that massive information that you've reported? You know that's that really that's really where the uh, the scale of the thing requires you to take a completely different approach. And, and, you know, how do I organize the story out of this? Uh, you know, it's not like writing a, um, even a 50 inch feature. It's, it's, uh, it's another animal altogether. And, uh, and really, I, I think that if any, if I, if I have a skill set that is tested most in, um, in books rather than long-form newspaper writing, say, it's it's purely organizational. It's just trying to uh, put everything in the right pile and then shape those piles. Yeah, it seems like that would be the biggest challenge. I think, what do you do with all the notes and how do you make it so you're not leaving something out that you know needs to be in there? Yeah, I mean, just in, in, in terms of getting them into your computer in, in some sense, it, you know, uh, I, I do not use a tape recorder or a you know a digital recorder. I, I I take notes in longhand, and you know if you want those notes to have any legitimacy, you got you have to get them into the computer pretty quickly after you get back to to the office or back home. Um, and uh, but then you know very soon you find that you can't find anything in your computer because you've got so much you know crap piled in there that it's it's become incomprehensible to you. So you have to come up with a system, and uh, mine is decidedly 19th century. It, it relies on a lot of paper. Uh, I don't put anything into the computer really. Uh, once I've, you know, I've got I've got dumb notes in the computer, but I don't I don't put any organized piece of a book into the computer until I'm pretty far along in the in the process. Mm -hmm. I build a, a paper filing system. Mm -hmm. Do you um kind of an offshoot as far as reporting? Do you write as you go? Were you, with this book, were you writing as you were reporting, or did you have like a lot of years of reporting and then just sit down and and, and knock it out? Well, uh, a combination of the two, really. Uh, you know, by the time I I really started to work on the book in earnest, I'd already been kind of following the story of this one fifty seven Chevy for uh, five years plus, and. Uh, so I had all that reporting, you know, the early reporting I had done, done. But what I found was that, you know, the level of, of detail that I needed for the book was, as you'd expect, uh, you know, several layers beyond what, what it was for the original series. So I had to go back and re-report everything. Plus, um, the whole last third of the book is kind of live. I mean, uh, it's unfolding before my eyes and before your eyes as the reader. And, um, and so I had to, I had to report that while I was writing other pieces of the book and, and I had outlined, uh, the story and had a pretty good idea that it was going to, you know, be a braid of three narrative threads and, and where the three would come together. So I knew the, you know, the, um, the structure that the thing would take. And because I was, uh, I outlined it, like that, I was able to write pieces of the book where the reporting was done first, and they weren't necessarily in order. So, for instance, I actually wrote chapters 17 and 18 first, then went back and wrote chapter one, 
and then I think I wrote chapter three and four. So I bounced around a bit, uh, depending on on how confident I was that the information I had for that chapter was in close to finished form. You know, um, things moved around and changed in little ways right up to the end. But but I had a good number of chapters in uh, in good shape pretty early. A, a big a big part of the book follows um, Arnie as he's restoring the car. Um, it's a really big. It's kind of what moves the book forward, right? Um, did you ever? Did you have a plan in case it didn't end the way you thought it was going to end? I don't want to give away how it ends, but yeah, um, basically, yeah, don't write the book. <laughs> that was, that was the plan, you know, after a certain point, you get so invested um, in the notion that he's going to if not succeed, at least get pretty far along in this, in this salvation of the car that, um, that to have all that completely fall apart would have been, uh, caused to just say, well, it was a good try, mm-hmm. but it's time to walk away. I don't think there was a, a way to salvage it. It became, it seemed much less a gamble when I started the project than it clearly became late in the project. Uh, as a number of distractions mounted uh, and you know hurdles to Tommy finishing, but when I when I started, you know, when I first found out that he had the car and approached him and said, "I hear you have this car," and he said, "Yeah, we're going to fix it up." Um, he estimated at that point that it was going to take about seven months, probably, of full time work. And of course, three years later, uh, you know, I, I was chewing my fingers fingernails down at the quick, wondering whether uh, it would come together. Even in those three years, did you ever start to have second thoughts about doing the project? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be lying to you to, if I were to suggest that I didn't. I had, um, in, you know, uh, this is, it's a difficult book to, to describe, mm-hmm. to give an elevator pitch to. And, uh, and when you do attempt an elevator pitch, it hits different people in different ways. Some people see it as a car book, which I do not. Mm-hmm. This is a car book at all. Uh, some people see it as a post-war cultural history, which is about as boring a label as one could possibly put in a book. But, you know, I mean, it, it, it is and it isn't that. It's um, So I had some, you know, I had some um, nagging doubts that I'd be able to about whether I'd be able to sell the book, first of all, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I had, I knew it was a great story and I knew that Tommy Arnie was a great story. He's, he's got all the elements for a great American, uh, archetype really. Uh, and, uh, and he lives them every day. I mean, there's, this is not a put on, this is a guy who is, uh, you know, he's really like this. He's, he's been arrested 70 odd times. He's a felon. He's a fifth grade dropout. He, Settled pretty much every dispute, no matter how minor, uh, throughout his early life with his fist by pounding the people into complete un- you know, unconsciousness. Um, he really, uh, near as I can tell, really did take on that police dog and really did use it as a weapon against a cop. Uh, he's he's uh, he's phenomenal, and um, I'd never had any doubt that he'd be great reading if I could just stick around long enough to see him finish, you know, reach some point where I could end the story and uh, got lucky. He, um, Tommy seems like he's so larger than life in many ways. He seems like a fictional character. Um, because you almost, I mean, how can, you know, 
how could that actually be a real person? Um, I'm curious. There were so many things that he did or claims to have done, and the dog thing especially. Um, can you talk about how? Because I know you wouldn't have included that if you could at least have been reasonably sure that it actually happened. How did you? How did you go about um, nailing that down? Well, I, I first of all tried to to chase all the paperwork that might have survived from that incident. I heard about the incident from from many people. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that if it wasn't true, it had, this falsehood had somehow gained the status of legend uh, among many walks of life in Norfolk. With paperwork, I was able to narrow it down uh, to 1988. And uh, Tommy was, in fact, arrested for assault on a police officer that year. And that was the charge that he says that he faced before Judge Lydia Taylor on the dog incident. And um, from there, I... Uh, uh, having had no luck in finding the actual paperwork from the the case because uh, Tommy had had much of his record expunged in the years since, I uh, I started calling cops. You know, I started talking to people who were there. Tommy had one Confederate with him that night, but that Confederate, unfortunately, had died of a drug overdose years before, so he wasn't much good to me. And um, his other Confederates could describe the scene in great detail, but none of them were there. Uh, but the cops, I figured, surely there is somebody left on the force or somebody who knows somebody who would be able to tell me. And uh, I ran into cops who had heard the story and uh, didn't know whether it was true or not. And uh, and finally tracked down the captain, the police captain, later an assistant chief, who uh, who Tommy says arrested him, was there at his arrest. And, and this captain did, in fact, remember arresting Tommy that night came into the action after the supposed police dog incident, thought it was, as he put it, probably bullshit, but couldn't say so with any certainty. (laughs) So basically what I found myself with was some kind of fossilized paperwork that suggested that something pretty big happened, but um, having to rely somewhat on the consistency of Tommy's description of this incident over the years and and presenting all of the evidence pro and con to the reader. Mm -hmm. And right. saying, you know, you're on your own because I can't, I can't come up with a definitive answer. Do you think you really did? Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I have very little doubt that he. Yeah, it's completely in character. Right. <laughs> um, one of the things I like about the book is it, it, and I don't think I going back to what you said when people were trying to describe the book. I don't think it, it's a car book. It's really sweeping in scope in. And uh, did you did you realize that that's what you were getting yourself into when you started it? How how big it was going to be in terms of? Yeah, I think I think I knew the macro story um, pretty well and recognized that up front. I didn't recognize that there would be so much kind of a, almost tapestry interweaving uh, on the small scale, you know, between various characters. Um, but yeah, yeah. My the book previous to this that I had done uh, was more of a car book. It was it was a book about American highways, a book about landscape called The Big Roads, and uh, and so I did have a sense that this would kind of cover not the same ground, but cover ground in a similar way in terms of it would be a, a fairly small story that told a much bigger story, uh, and that that was kind of the aim all along, uh, even when it was a newspaper series, but. Uh, there were a lot of surprises despite that. 
Can can you talk about um, the structure of the book and how kind of you came up with that? Yeah. Uh, one, one of the challenges that, that was playing right up front was that with Tommy Ernie as your main character, uh, you've got to figure out a way to get him to the front of the story. Because otherwise, you know, if you told this story chronologically, you'd begin in 1957 or before, and you'd work your way through 12 characters before you got to Tommy, the 13th owner. And the back of the book would be the most exciting thing anybody had ever read, but you'd lose a lot of people along the way. And so I split the, I cut the story into three lengths and then moved them around and braided them. And, and the three, the three threads of the braid were that the, the story opens in September, 2010, um, right after the, the, you know, that little intro that I read and, uh, that first thread takes you from that day to about March of the following year, March, April of the following year, when work on the car is just about to begin. And so this is a braid that covers just a few months and is spread out over the course of 13 chapters. And then the second braid is Tommy, beginning with his childhood all the way through his life, where it becomes clear that he is the product of a restoration every bit as much as this car requires. And, um, and how he became the man he has become. And then the, the third braid is the history of this particular car, going back to its design in Detroit through its manufacture in, in Cleveland and Baltimore, its arrival in Norfolk, and the lives of the 12 first owners. And all of these three braids come together in 13 chapters into the book, about two-thirds of the way in. And from that point on, they move as one forward to the end. Uh, and, and hopefully what it does is it gives you, for one thing, you never get, you never get tired. You never get bogged down on one of the threads because uh, each one of them is pretty well represented in each of those first 13 chapters. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're moving around and the, the pace remains pretty brisk throughout um, and, and, and hopefully the, the structure isn't so regimented that it becomes obvious. What I was hoping for was uh, I wanted it, I wanted the structure to feel like the guitars at the beginning of Honky Tonk Women. You know, if you listen to that, they sound drunken almost. They sound like there's no order to them at all. But you really listen to it, though, you realize they're, they're put together like a Swiss watch. It's perfect. You know, all that drunkenness is very consciously uh, snap together and uh and so that's that's what i tried to do here was to build a a very severe structure for the story but then erase most of the you know the giveaways that it existed mm -hmm. uh, but as a reader you sit down you meet tommy right off you meet the car right off you know and then you're in the moment as well wondering whether this restoration will begin mm -hmm. so. well or uh, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you about your book, Autobiography, A Classic Car, An Outlaw Motorhead, and 57 Years of the American Dream. Well, Matt, thank you. That was an interview I did with Earl Swift in November 2014 about his book, Autobiography. He's got a new book out now, Chesapeake Requiem, a Year with the Watermen of Vanishing Tangier Island was just published by HarperCollins and is getting rave reviews. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Swift's work on our website. You can find that at www 
www.gangritapodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.